Hey folks, it's Jared. Dr. Camille Goodman joins us today to discuss her book on coastal state jurisdiction in the EEZ, Unclaused Fisheries, and more. This episode was edited and produced by Marie Williams. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of our chapters and contact information on the website at simsec.org, so if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. With that, Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shimates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Camille Goodman, and we're going to be discussing her book, Coastal State Jurisdiction Over Living Resources in the Exclusive Economic Zone. So, Camille, welcome. Could you start by telling the audience a little bit more about your background, please? Yeah, hi, Jared. Thanks for having me on. I'm a senior lecturer at the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security, or ANCORS, at the University of Wollongong, where I teach and research on all sorts of law of the sea issues um, with a focus on fisheries, but also other oceans governance questions. I'm a slightly late comer to academia. I call myself a late career early academic um, rather than an early career academic um, because I spent 15 years working in government, uh, worked for the Office of International Law primarily in the Australian Government um, Attorney General's Department, advising on all sorts of uh, international issues, but primarily with a focus on law of the sea and international fisheries law. Uh, I did, during my time in government, um, do a Master's of Maritime Studies at ANCORS and then later a PhD at the Australian National University. And I've always tried to walk a line between public service and academia, so I suppose I call myself a pracademic. I like to be a practically focused academic. Well, thank you for coming on today. As a reminder to the listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated so why did you decide to write a book about coastal state jurisdiction over living resources in the easy? Is that a particularly controversial issue? Well, the idea for this book and for my PhD before it arose directly out of issues that I was seeing in practice as an international law advisor to government. And there were really two key things that influenced me. Uh, the first was I was privileged to work closely with fisheries officials from Pacific Island countries over the course of several years. And that really made me think differently about the rights and obligations of coastal states with respect to fisheries and the EZ. So the Western and Central Pacific Ocean is the source really of half the world's tuna. And much of that comes from the EZs of Pacific Island countries. And these countries have small administrations to regulate large fisheries and limited assets to enforce their regulations. But when you look at it, they have used their coastal state rights collectively to maximise the reach and effectiveness of their fisheries jurisdiction. And in doing this, they've multiplied the financial gains from their resources. And at the same time, I think they've been extremely effective in addressing illegal fishing. So I suppose as a government lawyer for one of the world's largest coastal states, when I set out to do my PhD, I wanted to investigate the possibilities and limits of their approach and see what it involved and whether it might be useful for other countries in other regions. So that was the first factor, to investigate the potential of coastal state jurisdiction over living resources in the EZ and to understand what can coastal states do 
on the basis of their sovereign rights. And then second, in my day-to-day job as a government lawyer, I had a unique perspective into both the law in the books, in academic writing and judicial decisions, and the law in practice, in laws and policies of states. And over time, I started realising these two things were not always the same, and sometimes there were important differences. And that's important because the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, is written as a framework convention. Many of its provisions are general or ambiguous or high level, and much is left to how it is interpreted or implemented in practice. And of course, in the case of the EZ, it was an entirely new legal construct used for the first time in UNCLOS. So there's a really important role for states in implementing the provisions of UNCLOS in practice. But Reviewing state practice is time-consuming and difficult because it can be hard to find and difficult to interpret and it isn't all in English or whatever your first language is. So it's more common to simply use the techniques of treaty interpretation to uh, interpret the rights and obligations in a treaty. But that leaves us with a risk of a gap between the law in the books and the law in practice. So in exploring coastal state jurisdiction, overliving resources in the EZ, I wanted to do it in a way that looked at the actual practice of states, of as many states as possible, so that other academics and courts and tribunals and governments would have access to a study that incorporates this practice and then would have the option to make decisions based not only on their interpretation of the text but on the actual practice of states in implementing that text. Can you explain the legal concept of jurisdiction and how it relates to sovereignty and sovereign rights? Good question, and I'll give it a go. Um, I'll start with jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is simply the ability of a state to make and enforce laws, and that gives us the two main forms of jurisdiction, prescriptive jurisdiction, making laws, and enforcement jurisdiction, enforcing laws. I guess as a matter of international law, the difficult question is, when, where, and in relation to who a state has the power to make and enforce laws or exercise jurisdiction. And that really flows from the underlying concept of sovereignty. So sovereignty doesn't have a specific definition in international law, but generally it refers to the exclusive competence to exercise the functions of a state within a particular territory. So it's territorial. Within its territory, The sovereignty of a state is complete and its powers are absolute, subject to any obligation it has taken on under international law through treaties or custom. But in order for sovereignty to be exercised equally by all independent states, obviously the sovereignty of one state has to stop where the sovereignty of the next state begins. So in general, a state's sovereignty is restricted to its own territory. So going back to jurisdiction, this means that jurisdiction is primarily territorial. A state can make and enforce laws within its own territory, and we call that territorial jurisdiction. But there are also a range of circumstances in which jurisdiction can be exercised in relation to activities beyond a state's territory, such as where a national of the state commits a crime abroad, for example or if the essential interests of the state are threatened. And this is known as extraterritorial jurisdiction. So in the ocean space, all of this becomes more complicated because it's inherently beyond the land, territory or sovereignty of any single state. So UNCLOS sets out a specific framework that governs how states can exercise their sovereignty and jurisdiction in the ocean space. 
So in the maritime zones, closest to the coast, closely linked to land territory, the coastal state has sovereignty subject to the passage regimes. And I'm talking, of course, of the internal waters and territorial sea. But further from the coast, in the EZ and on the continental shelf, coastal states don't have plenary rights of sovereignty or absolute competence to make and enforce laws on any subject. Instead, they have what we call sovereign rights with respect to all resource-related activities. So for those of us working on the oceans, sovereign rights is a term we use every day without really thinking about it. But actually, it's a term of art that is used in the law of the sea and not in other areas of international law. And it's a concept that was developed by the International Law Commission during their preparation of draft articles on the law of the sea way back in 1956. And those were the basis for the four 1958 conventions on the law of the sea, which preceded UNCLOS. And the International Law Commission needed to find a way to describe the coastal states' rights over the resources of the continental shelf without implying that the whole continental shelf itself was under the sovereignty of the coastal state in the same way as its land territory or territorial sea. So they came up with this idea of sovereign rights, which was intended to mean that the coastal state had plenary powers, sovereign rights, with respect to the resources of the seabed, but not with respect to the area of the seabed itself. So essentially, sovereign rights are a functionally limited variation of sovereignty. They give a state plenary jurisdiction for a particular purpose and the exclusive rights to make and enforce laws for that purpose. But they don't imply absolute competence over an area in the same way as sovereignty. You gave us one or two examples of this already, so I'm hoping you can expand it a little bit. What are the different types of jurisdiction under consideration when we discuss regulation of living resources? Well, the primary jurisdiction, um, particularly in the EZ, is that of the coastal state. Um, we know as a result of its sovereign rights over living resources in the EZ, the coastal state has all rights necessary for and connected with exploring, exploiting, conserving and managing the natural resources, living and non-living, of the EZ. And this means that the coastal state has prescriptive and enforcement jurisdiction, the exclusive right to make rules with respect to living resources and the right to enforce those rules against ships and persons of any nationality in the EZ. So in the exercise of its prescriptive jurisdiction, the coastal state can regulate who is permitted to fish in the EZ, when they fish, where they fish, how much they catch, what gear they use, where they land the fish, how they document their activities and what they have to pay for the privilege uh, and really any other things directly connected with fishing. And the coastal state can exercise its enforcement jurisdiction in relation to vessels or people of any nationality who don't comply with these rules, including through boarding, inspection, arrest and judicial proceedings. But whenever we consider the EZ, we also have to consider flag state jurisdiction. And the vessels of all states have the right to navigate freely through the EZ, and in doing so, they are subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of their flag state, unless they are engaged in activities which would fall under the coastal state's jurisdiction. So you can imagine this can give rise to some tricky questions about which activities fall within the coastal state's jurisdiction and which belong to the exclusive jurisdiction of the flag state. So, for example, 
the act of catching fish is clearly fishing and subject to regulation by the coastal state. But what about the act of transshipping fish from a catching vessel to a transport vessel or refueling a fishing vessel at sea? Or what about a fishing vessel that isn't fishing in the EZ at all, but simply transiting through on its way to another place, but it could fish? So exploring the practical breadth and depth of jurisdiction in all these areas and the balance between coastal and flag state rights is really one of the key focuses of the book. Now, in researching the book, you reviewed the fisheries laws of 145 different states and considered how the states implement the framework establishing own clause. So what did you find? Are the national fisheries laws of states consistent with the rules agreed to in own clause? Are there different practices that appear or, or what are the key areas of interest? Okay, so in the book, I look in detail at the way in which coastal states have given effect to the rules in UNCLOS in relation to five key issues. First, I start with a threshold question of what is fishing? UNCLOS doesn't actually define fishing, and the fishing industry has changed enormously over the last 40 years. So in order to understand how the laws and regulations of coastal states apply, we need to understand what activities they apply to and what actors. Second, I looked at the exercise of prescriptive jurisdiction, at how coastal states regulate access to living resources of the EZ by foreign vessels and foreign nationals. And I looked at the range of rules, regulations, prerequisites and conditions that are applied to this access. Third, I looked at enforcement jurisdiction and really at how coastal states enforce their fisheries laws. Through boarding, inspection, arrest and judicial proceedings as envisaged in UNCLOS, but also there are other means used such as blacklisting and even burning and sinking of vessels. Fourth, I look at the way in which coastal states regulate the transit of unlicensed foreign fishing vessels through the EZ, those vessels which are not fishing or which say they are not fishing in the EZ and are merely passing through in an exercise of freedom of navigation and can thus pose a real risk of illegal fishing and they can be very difficult to regulate. And fifth, I looked at the hot pursuit of fishing vessels beyond the EZ. And hot pursuit is a right, of course, which arises where a foreign vessel has violated the coastal state's laws and essentially fled the scene of the crime. And it has some very specific and in some ways quite outdated procedural requirements which must be fulfilled in order for it to be valid. And that poses some challenges and some opportunities in the context of modern fisheries enforcement. So generally speaking, and with some exceptions, while coastal states have departed from the exact terms of UNCLOS in some areas, I found that where there are limitations on their jurisdiction which affect their ability to effectively make or enforce fisheries laws, they address this by finding alternative approaches which still respect the way that jurisdiction is allocated under the convention. So, for example, while UNCLOS prohibits imprisonment as a penalty for illegal foreign fishing in the EZ, states have been able to circumvent this by obtaining consent from the flag state or the state of nationality of the offender before they impose that sort of penalty. And while UNCLOS provides that the right of hot pursuit ends at the territorial sea of a third state, a significant number of states have addressed this by simply seeking consent from that state to continue the hot pursuit into its territorial sea. 
And then, of course, UNCLOS is ambiguous enough that even though not all the practice of states is directly envisaged in the convention, often it's more a question of developing or adding detail rather than derogating or departing from the convention. But I did also see some key themes across the state practice. And um, there are four, I suppose, key ways in which I think coastal states maximise the extent of their jurisdiction based on sovereign rights over living resources. First, they use expanded interpretations of their jurisdiction, or they thicken the substance of their rights within the EZ. So, for example, the definition of fishing in the fisheries laws of many states doesn't relate only to the catching of fish, but it includes a broader range of fishing-related activities, including all the ancillary operations that form part of modern industrial fishing, so processing, packaging, storing, transporting, transshipping, bunkering, supplying, uh, even rotation of personnel and repairs at sea. And this has obviously some wide-ranging consequences for the extent of application of coastal state laws and potentially uh, even for coastal state licences because they can apply to all the fishing and fishing support vessels engaged in this broad range of fishing and fishing-related activities in the EZ. So you can see how this starts to thicken or expand the substance of coastal state jurisdiction. And then second... Coastal states use their jurisdiction with extended spatial or geographic effect uh, to influence activity beyond the boundary of the EZ. So they use their EZ jurisdiction for extraterritorial effect, if you like. So, for example, in the Pacific, FFA members, the Forum Fisheries Agency, have expanded the application and effectiveness of their vessel monitoring system by requiring foreign fishing vessels to consent to electronic monitoring at all times while they are licensed to fish in FFA waters. So those monitoring systems have to report both within and beyond the EZ of the coastal state, including on the high seas. And this technique has also been used by a sub-regional group of the FFA, the parties to the Nauru Agreement. Under their rules, any foreign fishing vessel licensed to fish in the EZ of a PNA member must not, during the period of validity of its licence, fish in prescribed areas of the high seas or transship fish at sea or conduct any bunkering or resupply activities in prescribed areas of the high seas. So, again, these coastal states are leveraging their sovereign rights over living resources in the EZ to address issues beyond the EZ, which would otherwise be beyond their jurisdiction, but which are related to fisheries management and enforcement. The third theme I noticed, also most evident in the Pacific, is that coastal states increase the scope and application of their jurisdiction by cooperating with other coastal states. And they do that both through collective application of licensing conditions and through cooperative approaches to enforcing fisheries laws and sharing of resources. And then fourth, coastal states increasingly employ modern technology to enhance the reach and effectiveness of their jurisdiction. And this is particularly evident, of course, in the context of enforcement, where there is a clear trend toward formally incorporating in legislation an ever-increasing range of techniques and technologies for the remote detection of fisheries offences. 
So these approaches enable fisheries surveillance to be conducted remotely using aerial and space-based mechanisms rather than through difficult, dangerous, costly physical inspections at sea. So with assistance often from civil society and private sector collaborators, coastal states are increasingly monitoring the activities of fishing vessels without having to ask for their cooperation or involvement, potentially even their knowledge, using state-of-the-art platforms and customizable computer algorithms, um, which allow them to combine and analyze data from different sources, from VMS, AIS, satellite imagery and drone technology. And they combine all of that together with the traditional data like vessel registration, licensing, ownership and history of IUU fishing. Now, you wrote in the book that, and I quote, Article 62.2 appears to establish an obligation for coastal states to allow other states to access any surplus fisheries resources in the EEZ, end quote. How do states implement a rule like that in practice? I do say that. Um, there, there is a good reason for Article 62 to establish that sort of obligation. It goes back to the establishment of the EZs when 90% of commercially exploitable fish stocks were transferred to the jurisdiction of coastal states. So because UNCLOS is ultimately concerned, as it says in its preamble, with establishing a just and equitable economic order that takes into account the needs and interests of mankind as a whole, coastal states are required to manage their fish stocks by reference to an objective of optimum utilisation. So in theory, this rule in Article 62 is to ensure that other states can access the living resources of the EZ if the coastal state itself cannot harvest them all. And that ensures that the resources of the EZ aren't effectively underutilised by coastal states at the expense of the international community. So under Article 62, if the coastal state doesn't have the capacity to harvest the entire allowable catch of the living resources in the EZ by itself, it's required to give other states access to that surplus through agreements or arrangements. But UNCLOS doesn't say what type of agreements or arrangements should be used. And in practice, states give effect to this rule in a number of different ways, whether designed to grant or to limit foreign fishing access. So first, some states regulate foreign fishing through access agreements, either with foreign states or with their fishing industry associations, or through direct licensing with individual companies or vessels. And these sort of agreements generally permit fishing in the EZ by a certain number of vessels under certain agreed conditions subject to a certain payment. Some coastal states have used these access agreements to negotiate not just monetary payments, but also other forms of cooperation in fishing and fisheries development, training, technical assistance, even capacity building. And interestingly, these access agreements can also be regional or multilateral. So they can allow the vessels of one state to fish in the waters of two or more coastal states. And one example here would be the US Tuna Treaty, which has been in operation since 1988. And it enables Persane vessels from the US to fish for tuna in the combined EZs of all the members of the Pacific Island Foreign Fisheries Agency in return for an annual payment and uh, commitments about broader cooperation in fishing and fisheries developments. There are some states which require foreign fishing operation to be carried out in association with national partners, uh, perhaps through a 
a, a joint venture, joint partnership, or by assimilating them with a national vessel. And I guess the most obvious example here is New Zealand, um, following some serious allegations of mistreatment and underpayment of foreign crews on foreign charter vessels in New Zealand waters, New Zealand amended its Fisheries Act in 2014. So it now requires that all fishing vessels operating in the New Zealand EEZ must be flagged to New Zealand. So essentially that means all foreign-owned fishing vessels operating in New Zealand waters are then subject to the same regulations as New Zealand's domestic vessels, both with respect to the conduct of fishing per se and minimum wages and employment conditions and other things. And then thirdly, and perhaps most interestingly, there are also some coastal states which effectively exclude foreign fishing in the EZ, whether implicitly or explicitly. And this is possible because of the ambiguity of Article 62, which gives the coastal state complete discretion to determine whether or not there is a surplus or whether its own nationals can harvest the entirety of the allowable catch. And some states have used this discretion very broadly to prohibit foreign fishing altogether. So, for example, the Philippines Fisheries Code makes clear that fishing in Philippines waters is reserved exclusively to Filipinos. And Egypt's legislation simply says that fishing licences shall not be issued to foreign vessels. And there are a number of other countries with similar provisions. But there are also countries who have prohibited foreign fishing by more, I suppose, indirect means, and in particular by declaring marine protected areas over the entirety or at least a large portion of the EZ with the effect that no surplus then will be declared and no foreign fishing allowed. So while I guess most coastal states do provide some opportunity for other states to access fisheries in the EZ, including because it's economically beneficial for them, I think very few actually follow the specific mechanisms set out in Article 62. But again, I, I don't think it's really surprising given Article 62 was adopted as a compromise in the negotiation of the EZ regime rather than perhaps as a reflection of realistic fisheries management and actual state practice. There are a number of references in the book to the collective application of minimum terms and conditions. So what does that look like in practice and where have you seen that used effectively? Well, examples of collective approaches to regulation are evident in a number of places in the Pacific um, through the Forum Fisheries Agency and the parties to the Nauru Agreement, but also in East Africa um, through the Southwest Indian Ocean Fisheries Commission and in West Africa through the Sub-Regional Fisheries Commission and the Fisheries Committee of the West Central Gulf of Guinea. And there are sort of nascent um, collective approaches in other regions too, including South African development community and some organisations in the Caribbean and Latin America. But I suppose at its most basic, the collective application of minimum terms and conditions involves a number of coastal states, generally co-located in a region, agreeing to establish harmonised minimum terms and conditions that all of them will apply to the conduct of foreign fishing in their respective exclusive economic zones. And these harmonised minimum terms and conditions commonly include things like marking of fishing vessels and gear, reporting requirements about the position of the vessel and catch and effort, uh, control and monitoring of transshipment, requirements about the landing of catch, carriage of authorised observers, 
uh, installation and carriage of a vessel monitoring system, but they can be others as well. And this sort of system can have a range of advantages, I think both for vessels and for coastal states. Uh, for vessels operating in more than one EEZ in a particular region, this sort of consistency can make it much easier to move between zones. They don't have to change what they're doing every time they cross a boundary. And for coastal states, of course, it exponentially strengthens the position of each individual coastal state in setting stringent standards for access because foreign vessels and foreign states cannot seek to manipulate or avoid the application of fisheries laws and regulations just by transferring their access fees to another EZ. Now, some coastal states have extended the application of this collective approach to compensation. Um, and the best example of this is the Vessel Day Scheme established by the parties to the Nauru Agreement I mentioned earlier. And that's a sub-regional group comprising eight members of the Forum Fisheries Agency who have adjoining EZs which contain the most productive tuna fishing grounds in the Western and Central Pacific region. And through their Vessel Day Scheme, the PNA members establish a total allowable effort, fishing effort, to apply within the entire area of their combined EZs. And that is then allocated between the eight members. Each of those members can then grant foreign access to a certain amount of fishing in its EZ up to their allocation. In particular, what they've done is to establish a minimum benchmark price to be paid by foreign fishing vessels in order to have access to those EEZs. And in this way, they've been able to exponentially increase the return from their resources. So in 2004, the cost of a fishing day in those waters was $1,350. US But by 2015, that had increased to $8,000. And that's a minimum. They all have to apply as a minimum. So they've increased their returns from between 3 and 6% of the landed value of the catch to 14% of that value. And they've really been able to maximise, I suppose, the effectiveness of their sovereign rights and extract additional benefits from the fishery. I would note, though, collective minimum terms and conditions can also have a role in enforcement. And the example I'd use, again, is the Foreign Fisheries Agency. And under their harmonised minimum terms and conditions, FFA members have agreed not to licence any foreign fishing vessel to operate in their EZ unless that vessel is first registered in good standing on the FFA vessel register, which is a regional register. An application for good standing won't be granted unless the vessel is not on an IUU list. All relevant forms and fees must have been paid and the vessel must be providing position reports via VMS to a centralised FFA system. And a vessel's good standing can also be withdrawn or suspended if the vessel contravenes the fisheries laws and regulations of any FFA member or is listed on an IUU list. So this concept of good standing not only strengthens the effectiveness of each individual FFA member's fisheries laws, but it essentially functions as a regional positive compliance list because a vessel can't be licensed to fish in these highly productive fishing grounds unless it's in good standing on the FFA register. What is creeping jurisdiction? Where are we seeing it today? And what can or should be done to address it? Well, expanded unilateral assertions of jurisdiction have 
I suppose, prompted a fear of the territorialization of the oceans and the creeping jurisdiction of coastal states really since the 1970s. I mean, in its original form, the concept of creeping jurisdiction related to the geographic expansion of coastal state authority in pursuit of ocean resources and economic security. And the adoption of UNCLOS and particularly the establishment of maritime zones was intended to address this by freezing the expansion of coastal state authority and providing stability and predictability in the exercise of jurisdiction at sea. But nonetheless, this concept of creeping jurisdiction hasn't gone away. These days, I think it primarily relates to substantive expansions of coastal state authority or what I called thickening before, thickening of coastal state authority within established maritime zones. And primarily it's in pursuit of military and environmental security or I would say protection of geographic authority already secured and the resources within it. There are arguments that creeping jurisdiction is also reflected in the various exercises of coastal state jurisdiction over living resources, uh, such as the extension of coastal state regulations to fishing-related activities like transshipment and refuelling, and the regulation of unlicensed fishing vessels in transit through the EZ. But in my view, these aren't illegitimate jurisdictional creep they are merely an exercise of the coastal state's sovereign rights over living resources in its EZ, sitting within the contemporary interpretation of coastal state jurisdiction under UNCLOS. So for me, as long as coastal state jurisdiction remains within its functional limits, purpose for which those sovereign rights were attributed, and so long as these activities are clearly restricted to regulating fishing and fisheries, then in my view, it's not likely to constitute creeping jurisdiction. Now, 10 December of this year is going to mark 40 years since UNCLOS was adopted and opened for signature. In light of all the research that you've done, and in particular your review of state practice, do you think the convention still needs still meets the needs of the international community where it regards uh, fisheries? Well, generally speaking, yes, I do. I think UNCLOS has proved to be remarkably comprehensive, effective and enduring, um, particularly given all the issues, actors and activities at sea and the way in which those issues, actors and activities have changed over the last 40 years. But I think we are going to face some new challenges in the years ahead that will test the convention and will require us to think and act innovatively and purposefully as an international community. Um, the key challenge, of course, will be climate change, and that spreads its tentacles into all sorts of issues. Uh, for example, in this region, in the Pacific, the warming effects of climate change on the ocean are now predicted to alter the distribution of tropical tuna stocks, which are likely to move uh, from the west to the east and from EEZs under the jurisdiction of coastal states more into the high seas. So that will have significant effects for the small island developing states who've been so effective in managing and developing their EZ tuna fisheries. And then, of course, sea level rise has a myriad of implications of its own, including with respect to the islands and maritime zones by which sovereign rights over living resources are generated and defined. We're going to see, I think, changes in the uses and users of the ocean space, 
particularly with the move to net zero emissions and the end really ultimately of offshore oil and gas. We'll have a huge increase in the generation of offshore renewable energy from wind, wave and solar. And that will see new and different infrastructure actors and activities competing for ocean space with established industries like fisheries, who will at the same time be dealing with this redistribution of fish stocks. And I think we also need to think probably about how the fishing industry itself can contribute toward this change and what role fisheries can play in reducing the emissions that are driving it. I think I think UNCLOS can cope with this. Um, I'm fascinated to see, though, how the different provisions of the convention might become more or less relevant as we adjust to a new reality and what sort of different interpretations start to emerge. And I'll be watching the state practice closely in that regard, uh, as you can imagine. But I also think, or I suppose I hope, that particular attention will be given now, as we haven't really done yet, to the principles in the convention that speak to making this change in a way that recognises the needs and special circumstances of developing states and contributes meaningfully to sustainable development and to those overall goals of UNCLOS around the realisation of a just and equitable economic order and the protection and preservation of the marine environment. Well, thank you so much. A lot of discussion today about uh, monitoring for the listeners. If you want to listen to other podcasts uh, in that same vein, uh, I would recommend Sea Control 212 with Dr. Ian Rowley and Dr. Tabitha Mallory talking about the Chinese fishing fleet operating off the Galapagos Sea Control 368 with Gina Fiore talking about um, August's new MDA initiative, uh, Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative, and Sea Control 356 with Dr. Gohar Petrosian talking specifically about the issue of tracking transshipment. But uh, otherwise, I, I am sorry that is all the time that we've got for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Camille Goodman. Uh, Camille, where can we find you online and what else are you working on? Uh, you can get me uh, by email, cgoodman at uow.edu.au. I'm pretty active on Twitter, at Camille J. Goodman, and I'm pretty much working on all the things I just spoke about in answer to that last question. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the book, One More Time, I'm going to play it, Coastal State Jurisdiction Over Living Resources in the Exclusive Economic Zone. We've had a couple of books like this that we discuss on the podcast. It's an excellent desk reference if for no other reason than the just myriad examples that you provide throughout uh, that you can refer back to if you're researching something in the maritime domain. Excellent book, excellent read. But thank you again for joining us, Camille. To listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.